0: Good to see you. Hey, join me in a a word of prayer. Father, we love you, and Lord, we are so grateful to be gathered here as a church family to sing and celebrate baptisms and pray to you, and now to look to your word. We uh, come in humility and ask for your help. Lord, would you help us understand what we read, help us uh, discern these truths and apply them to our lives? Um, we, We need your help. And Father, we thank you as we do almost every week, that you um, have not left us to wonder who you are or what you are like, but you have revealed yourself to us. You've shown us who you are in your word, Lord. So be pleased and glorified in our time together this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, well, we're so glad you're here with us at FBC on Baptism Sunday. It's one of one of the best days of the year. Uh, hey, I want to invite you to turn with me in God's Word. If you have a Bible with you to the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 8 is where we're going to be. Again, the book of Acts, it's in the New Testament, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, and we are just picking up where we left off. If you've been with us for uh, any time this year, you've heard and seen that we've been walking through the book of Acts uh, since January, so pretty much all you with the exception of a handful of Sundays, we've been walking through this great book of the Bible. Uh, It's a historical document. The book of Acts is a historical document written by a first century doctor by the name of Luke, the same author as the Gospel of Luke. But in the book of Acts, he's basically chronicled the early days of this movement that we call Christianity. So he looks at the early church and he chronicles their life together, uh, what the church was was like how it came to be and then what they were about in the ancient world as this movement just explodes across the ancient world now as we get started I want you to uh, well a little exercise with me would you raise your hand if you're familiar with the fight or flight response Okay, almost everybody, almost everybody, the fight or flight response, this is a, it's our body's natural way of responding to danger or a perceived threat, right? With fight or flight, that uh, means you perceive a threat, and then there are these physiological changes, your, your heart rate uh, increases, increasing blood flow and oxygen to your body and muscles, your, your senses are heightened so that you're able to survive whatever threat is coming your way this is what kicks in when when a bear is charging at you Uh, this is what kicks in when you're in your bed at night and you hear some noises right outside your window and you're not sure what that's about Um, but as we've seen um, fight or flight kicks in not just in real moments of danger but also when there are perceived threats when a bear is charging us but also in a meeting when we're criticized by a coworker, or when we get a a grumpy email from one of our clients and our bosses cc'd on it or when we're in a social situation where there's just too many people and too many complicated dynamics for us to navigate well our body tells us hey you are in life or death danger this is a threat and so either you need to eliminate the threat fight or get out of the situation flight many of us know this all too well as we're living in an anxious age our bodies ramp up with anxiety telling us that we're in danger but here's the deal our body often can't tell the difference between a real threat real danger and when it's just karen who's upset with us and yelling at us See what I'm saying? Sorry, if your name's Karen, um, you know what I'm talking about. And so we have to learn, we have to train our bodies and our minds. How are we going to respond to perceived threats? Our body might be telling us we're in danger, but we have to interpret that and consider, am I in real life and death danger or not? But here's the question for us this morning as we think about fight or flight and threats and danger, is What do we do when the perceived threat in our life is Jesus? How do we respond when the perceived threat in our life is Jesus? The reason I bring all this up, the reason we're talking about this this morning, is because in the text we encounter a group of people who are convinced that Jesus is a threat. And they choose between fight and flight, and they choose to fight. Briefly, as we get there, we'll get there. Remember where we were last week if you weren't with us. uh, We saw this internal conflict in the life of the church, right? There were these widows that were being overlooked. Uh, neglected in the daily distribution of food in the ancient world it was very important for friends family to take care of widows and orphans and those who couldn't provide for themselves who didn't have the same sort of uh, social safety nets that we enjoy in our world today. But in the church some of the Greek speaking Jews from other parts of the world were not being taken care of the way that they were supposed to be and uh, those Jews who were more local who spoke Hebrew were getting more attention. Now, before we uh, you know, go further, I just want to mention, I wanted to say this last week, but uh, I forgot to. This is one of those places in the Bible that would have been easy um, to leave out if... You felt free to edit the Bible. Here's what I mean by that. Um, this is one of those sections that makes the leaders of the church, um, they cast them not in the best light, let's just say, right? Overlooking widows, kind of important to care for widows according to the Bible. So this isn't the the best moment for them. And there's many passages like this that show the disciples in maybe a questionable light um, or a downright bad light. We think of Peter or others. And as we read those, it should give us confidence in the account that we read. Because... If they simply made up these stories for their own personal benefit, or if they felt the freedom to simply edit and change and tweak over time the stories in such a way as to make themselves look better, as is often claimed, certainly this would be one of those stories they would have left out. Like, hey guys, can we just not include the part where the foreign widows were neglected and starving on our watch? Can we just like, just just toss that one out? Um, No, no, I know, I know, I know. But maybe we just, like, just smudge it a little bit on the page so that people just kind of skip over it and don't read it as much. You see what I'm saying? But we have this account clearly given to us. I think the only reason that we still have record of this encounter today is because it really happened. And the authors of the New New Testament didn't feel the freedom. Just, hey, we're going to toss this and change this and edit this. They actually said, no, this is the Word of God, and we're going to dictate it as it actually happened. The situation was resolved. If you remember, the widows were being overlooked, and they appointed seven new leaders to care for the widows. Acts chapter 6, verse 5 says, this proposal pleased the whole group. Again, we're going to get seven guys. They're going to handle this. And they chose Stephen, the first of the seven, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The first of the seven chosen is a man named Stephen. And we're going to spend a lot of time with Stephen this week and in the next couple of weeks as we see what goes on with this trial of his. He's at the center of the story. And we learn a little bit more about him today. You already heard of it, but look at verse 8. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So notice, just first, what leaps off the page is how the text describes Stephen. What does it say in verse 8? He was full of God's grace... And power. I don't know about you, but if someone said that about me, I would feel flattered and encouraged. Here is a man full of God's grace and power. It's a great description. He's performing signs and wonders. It tells us he's full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit responding to objections that come his way. Now, you notice some conflict in the text right in verse 9. We're going to talk about this whole situation, this opposition he's facing. We'll come to that in a few minutes. But first, let's just look closely at Stephen the man. What do we learn about our brother Stephen? Uh, He wasn't one of the 12 apostles, and yet he's clearly a leader in the early church, appointed to serve. He's a, a great example for us to consider, a positive example. Now, don't get me wrong. Many of the characters, the people in Scripture that we encounter are deeply flawed. And their flaws and their sin are on full display for all history to see, even the heroes. Right? We see Peter denying Jesus. We see Moses killing people back in Egypt. We see Abraham pretending his wife was his sister and then having her marry somebody else so he's protected and safe remember that one and then he does it again just you know Um, we could go on and on it's quite encouraging to read those stories isn't it because then we remember wow God uses broken people and I know that I'm a broken person and so maybe God could even use me Stephen certainly was a broken man, a sinner as we all are, but in this text, uh, his sins aren't aired out. We actually don't see much of anything negative about Stephen. He's presented as this beautiful example of faithfulness to God. And often it's good to look to Scripture and see heroes of the faith and their faithfulness to God and desire to model such a behavior and such a witness that we might aspire to be these kinds of people. Right? Don't we want to be the kind of people of whom it could be said they are full of grace? And that is a man or a woman, when your name comes up, someone will say, they are full of God's grace. They are full of wisdom. They are full of the Spirit and God's power. I mean, think about just that first word. They're full of God's grace. Grace is such a, a central word in the scriptures, such a foundational word. Yeah, it means unmerited favor. It's used to speak of something that is a, a gift. It first speaks to God's grace, one who has received, what, the gift of salvation through faith in Christ. God's love is, is freely given to all who would come to him empty-handed to receive grace his salvation through faith in christ but then we learn to extend this love and grace that's poured into our hearts from the lord then it overflows into how we treat other people and so we likewise should extend the same love and grace to the people around us i want you to think with me in your mind uh, what you would think of when you think of a gracious person picture with me a gracious person Someone who's full of God's grace. What would that look like? Again, it would look like someone who is not exacting and cold. Someone who is not always running the numbers and doing the math and the calculations on what they deserve and what you deserve and making sure that you get what you deserve and you get what you deserve and I get what I deserve. They're quick uh, to point out an offense And a punishment that goes with it. But instead, right, it would be someone who overflows with love and kindness. Someone who treats others not as they deserve, but much better. Because that's how the Lord has treated us. Maybe someone comes to mind right now, a gracious person that you know that's influenced your life. Maybe they're in this room right now. Would encourage you before the day's over go tell that person that they came to mind for you or if they're not here send them a text message hey we were talking about uh, being people full of grace and love at church and you came to mind guarantee you it will make their day so stephen is full of god's grace and power now notice though this doesn't mean that he's a pushover like he's just so kind and nice and he just agrees with whatever he hears and doesn't have a backbone and has no objections to anything or anyone. Notice, he has opposition. And he responds to them. He's empowered by the Spirit, given great wisdom to answer critique, to contend for the truth of the gospel out in public, to correct errors, to preach truth. God's wisdom and the Spirit have filled this man so much that he's an effective minister wherever he goes. Now, notice with me that that God promises in his word to give us wisdom when we ask. Again, Stephen was full of God's grace, power, we see his wisdom. Think with me of James chapter one that says, if any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. This is one of my favorite promises in Scripture. If you lack wisdom, which you do, that's me talking to myself, go to God and ask him for his help and his wisdom, and it will be given to you. How many of us need to cry out to God for wisdom? This is one of my most frequent prayers. Lord, I have no idea what to do in this situation. I don't know what to say here. Lord, I need your wisdom. Would you help? Lord, fill me with your spirit and your wisdom and the ability to respond well in this situation. To know what to say and when to say it and what not to say and what posture to have. Lord, I need your wisdom. Would you help me? And actually, God, you said, you said if I asked you, you would give it. And so I'm going to take you up on that. I really need your help here. Oh, that we would learn to pray prayers like this. Lord, grant me your wisdom. Fill me with your spirit. It's not wrong to pray for circumstances to change, uh, but often I'd say our prayers maybe are slanted too much in that direction. Lord, I want this specific outcome. Lord, would you change this person or these events or have this go a certain way. I think more often it's probably more helpful to respond with prayers, not for circumstances to change, but for our hearts to change. Lord, make me this kind of person. Lord, help me respond with great wisdom in whatever I face. Lord, soften my heart. Make me a man that is gracious and kind and loving. Make me a a woman that is full of God's grace and power and his spirit and wisdom wherever I go. has a beautiful prayer. Lord, make me like Stephen. I want to be a man or woman marked by these traits like he was. So Stephen's described as this powerful man of God. But not everybody's happy about that, right? Look at the text, verse 9. Opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Now, in Jerusalem at the time, there were various synagogues. Uh, which would be centers of community and faith and debate and teaching and fellowship. And the one referenced here for the Jews was the synagogue of the freedmen. These were freed slaves of Roman citizens. Former slaves that now had their freedom. And it lists the cities here in the text and provinces that they uh, were from. Now some read this and say, hey, there's actually multiple different synagogues represented here. Others say, hey, it's just one. I think that's the better interpretation. Just one synagogue of the freedmen and they were from these various parts of the world they were enslaved but then were granted their freedom or perhaps their parents were slaves and then became free they lived in various parts of the ancient world but they were jews who now have come back to jerusalem and they actually in the city of jerusalem had this elevated social status as the freedmen it was seen as a virtuous thing and it was this group that took issue with Stephen's teaching. But we see in verse 10 that they couldn't beat him in an argument. He spoke with such wisdom and power by the Spirit. Young people in our audience, we would say if Stephen, he was a W. Okay, he was out there just winning every argument. If you're a young person, you would look at him and say, slay! And young people? I tried that first service, and a high schooler just, like, shook his head at me and said... <laughs> Don't, don't try to use the Gen Z lingo, Pastor Matt, please. But anyways, he was um, winning every argument. He was doing great work for the kingdom. And so because they can't beat him, they, they don't join him. They try to kill him. So they resort to the other tactics. Verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Sound familiar? They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that's the temple, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So Stephen's opponents, notice, man, they're worked up. we got to get rid of this guy. And so they're stirring up problems with the people and the teachers of the law and the elders and all the important people in authority. They provide false witnesses. They accuse him of blasphemy. They arrest him. They seize him. They bring him for the Sanhedrin. Once again, the highest court in the land. We have another trial scene in the book of Acts. All right, it sounds familiar. We've seen this with the apostles previously. We'll go even further back, and we've seen this with who? The Lord Jesus himself. On trial, false witnesses, accusations. And so we see that, that Stephen really stands out in this passage as one who is resembling Jesus. How what he is going through so parallels what the Lord Jesus himself went through. I mean, scholars have noted just all the connections. Maybe you've already noticed some of them starting in verse 8. Again, Stephen was doing great signs and wonders among the people. Just like Jesus was a miracle worker, one who did great signs and wonders among the people. Stephen's opponents, verse 10, couldn't beat him or trap him in their interactions. Just like remember how they kept trying to oppose Jesus and trap him in his words and bring these puzzling scenarios and questions to him to trick him or discredit him or get him in trouble. And each time he responded so well that eventually they stopped trying. Like, we're not going to bring any more questions to that guy. He wins every time. We see Stephen had the people stirred up against him. He's accused of what? Blasphemy and speaking against the temple. Jesus had people stirred up against him and was accused of blasphemy and speaking against the temple. Verse 12 and 13, Stephen is seized and put on trial with false witnesses. Jesus was arrested, seized, put on trial with false witnesses. There's more as we go, actually, but you get the idea. Stephen is enduring very much the same opposition and persecution that Jesus endured. And that's actually exactly what Jesus said would happen. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So prepare. Don't be surprised. Expect, actually, such bumps in the road. Take comfort that even in this, there's this this nearness and and closeness with Jesus himself that you will enjoy as you go through suffering, as your experience parallels his. Now, here's where we've got to zoom in a little bit. And look at the charges that they're bringing against Stephen, and notice what they're doing. Verse thirteen, they pronounced—or excuse me—produced false witnesses who testified. And I love how they start here. This fellow, this fellow, this guy never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. They're talking about the temple. And change the customs Moses handed down to us. If you're an underliner in your Bible, if you're a note taker, just underline, circle, change the customs Moses handed down to us. What is their charge? He's speaking against the temple, even saying Jesus will destroy it. He's speaking against the law, the Torah. The Holy Word of God. He wants to change the customs that, for generations, we have had handed down from Moses. Now, lean in with me here, okay? If anyone's falling asleep out there, now's the time to wake up. Lean in a little bit. We got we got a real talk. You got to understand how powerful and evocative these claims would be for the Jews to hear for the Sanhedrin to hear such a claim for a devout Orthodox Jew in the first century to hear these claims. If you were a devout Jew in the ancient world for generations, your identity was tied to the temple and to the law of Moses. Think about it, the temple, that's the place where God dwells with his people. What makes us the people of God, they thought, is that our God dwells among us. He is here, and we have the temple to prove it. It was the center of their social life, their religious life, their economic life. This clear picture of God's presence and favor upon the people. And the law, the Torah that separate us from the rest of the nations. We have the law of Moses, the dietary laws that say what we can eat and not eat, and those are to make us distinct from the nations around us. And we have uh, the law of circumcision that publicly, that marks us as the people of God. And we have the sacrificial system in the law that tells us how we get right with God. We have these cherished boundary markers for the people of God. This is what makes us who we are. The law in the Torah, again, was so central to Jewish life, it was God's very word. One commentator even observed that some sages in the ancient world said that non-existence is better than inability to recite the Torah. Like, it's better to die than to not be able to hear the Torah or recite the Torah. That's how important it was to them. Okay, stay with me. The, some of these witnesses are, again, false witnesses. And, and surely, they're, they're misrepresenting some of the nature or the claims that Jesus made, no doubt. But there's some truth here in what they're claiming. Think about it this way. In, in Jesus, these cherished markers of identity are being understood now in new ways. And one of the tensions that the church has to deal with here and throughout the New Testament, you read Galatians and, and other books you see, man, what does it mean? They're wrestling with, what does it mean to be the people of God? If the Old Covenant and our Old Testament boundary markers of identity, the law, the temple, the land, circumcision, the dietary laws, the sacrificial system, what does it mean to be the people of God if those things no longer mark us? And they're somehow reinterpreted and centered on the person of Jesus. This is probably the biggest debate in the life of the early church. Read through the book of Acts, we'll see. Like, including the Gentiles? What do you mean you can become part of the people of God without circumcision, without following the Torah? One commentator explained it this way. The consequences for the temple and the law are not difficult to see. Because the interface between the temple and the law are the sacrifices. Sacrifices. So connected with the question of how salvation is bestowed by God, the focus was in particular on the sin and guilt offerings and on the ritual of the day of atonement. Like this is part of what it means to be the people of God, to get right with God. It's the law. It's the temple, the sacrificial system in the temple. And so he goes on to say, believing in Jesus. As the only one who saves from sins implies that the sins of Israel are no longer atoned for by animal sacrifices, and that purity and holiness are no longer established by rituals prescribed by the law, but rather on account of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. So belonging to the people of God is now not a matter of temple and Torah observance. It's about faith in Jesus. In the first century, Jews say, we don't know what to do with that. The way of Jesus was a threat to these leaders. So verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. They're facing an identity crisis. There's a threat in between fight or flight. They choose fight. And we're going to come at Stephen. We've got to get rid of this guy. Just like they came for Jesus and wanted to get rid of him. And so, what happens to us when we see Jesus as a threat today? What happens when we encounter Jesus and it causes for us an identity crisis? And Jesus actually is a threat to us because then we have to actually reconsider what does it mean to live the good life or to to know God or to be a good person or whatever? What does it mean to rethink all of that if it needs to be centered on Jesus? What I thought before is being challenged, you see? Think of it this way. We have cherished identity markers of our own. For you, it's not the temple or the Torah, most likely. For us modern-day folks, we have formed a sense of of who we are. Here's who I am. Here's what it means to be a good person, a virtuous person, to to live the good life. Here's what I value. Here's what matters to me. And all of that is shaped and formed and wrapped up in something. Maybe for you, your identity is wrapped up in, in political affiliation right or left. Maybe for you, your identity is wrapped up in a certain social cause that you get really worked up about and post on social media about a lot. Maybe your identity is wrapped up in being a self-made man. You made it. You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. You figured life out. Look at what you've built, the family, the business you've built. Maybe, maybe your identity is wrapped up in being an independent woman who doesn't need anybody else Maybe your identity is wrapped up in being an open-minded person. You are inclusive, and you would never say something so offensive as Jesus is the only way to salvation. Maybe your identity is wrapped up in your sexuality or your relationships, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, your future spouse that doesn't exist yet, but they're the one that's going to fulfill you. Or maybe you're wrapped uh, wrapped up in your work and your accomplishments and what you achieve. But then you encounter Jesus. You see what I'm saying? I don't think that any of us meet Jesus and have him fit neatly into our lives without a hitch. I don't think any of us, I don't don't care what your background is, where you've been, what you've done. Again, your story, it doesn't matter. Whenever we meet Jesus, it is what you could call a holy disruption. And if we actually encounter Jesus and then just go on living the same exact way that we've always lived, we're like, hey, Jesus, you're nice. You make me feel good about myself. Come along for the ride. I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. That's probably an indication that we've misunderstood what it actually means to follow Jesus. We've put it this way before. Um, When Jesus moves in, he rearranges the furniture. You don't have to clean up your house in order for Jesus to come over. He wants to come over. But once he gets there, he's going to take a look around and say, We're going to change some things. We're going to take that weird clown painting off the wall. Don't know where you got that. Um, Again, have you heard of a coaster? We're going to get you some. Um, Have you heard of IKEA? Hop in the car. We're going to go take a trip. We've got some work to do here. It's all for your good. It's all in love. But you, you see, when we encounter Jesus, he's going to rearrange the furniture in our lives. Following Jesus is, is bowing the knee, saying, Jesus, you are Lord. I surrender. Your will, your way. So I love so much the, um, the story you heard this morning with Cole and Kelsey in baptism. Uh, where they said, you know what? Um, we want to do things God's way. And that's going to mean that in our life, we're going to have to change some things. They could have encountered that uh, situation and responded differently. Talked with plenty of pastors who have had similar conversations with people preparing for marriage uh, who respond differently. So I'm not going to change. I'm not going to do things differently. It's too painful, too difficult to change. I don't want to do it. And we, we again, profess faith or love for Jesus in our words, but then our lives don't always Match, and so I can't tell you how encouraged I was, Cole and Kelsey, to see you guys encounter the Word of God and say, "You know what? Yeah, we're going to change. We want to do things God's way." What what a model, really? I mean, for all of us, (laughs) truly. So many of us encounter Christ. We hear about Jesus and we say, "Well, he's a threat. He's a threat to my way of life. He's a threat to how I understand myself." And so, some of us fight him. Or some of us run away from him. We choose flight. But I want to put before you that there's a third option. Again, between fight or flight, we also have the choice of surrender. Surrender means we wave the white flag rather than the war flag. Surrender means we take Jesus seriously when he told his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So in following Jesus, there is a death, isn't there? There's a death to self. There's a death to my old way of life. There's a a repentance, a turning from my old life, my sin, acknowledging my need for a Savior, and now I'm trusting in Christ. And it's not just a one-time thing, right? As we follow Jesus, we are to live this life of repentance, or how many times over and over again as Christians, even for, for years, for decades, we're Christians. Then we come across something in God's Word, and by His Spirit, He convicts us and says, I'm actually not living this out. God calls me to forgiveness, and I'm actually harboring unforgiveness and bitterness in my heart towards my brother or sister. I need to do something about that. God calls me to be generous, and I'm actually living uh, with, with a closed fist around all my time and all my resources, and I need to change that. And so in some way, again, we perceive Jesus as a threat, and actually in in a lot of ways, he is. (laughs) He is a threat to us and to our old way of life. But it's not because he's against us. It's not because he wants to do us harm. It's because he has to cut out (laughs) all the junk in our life so that we can experience freedom and joy and his grace and walk with him. It's because he's for us. So in Jesus, there is death, death to sin, but it's a death that comes before life because then he raises us up. He gives us resurrection life and creates us anew to walk in his ways. Let me just say this, that's good news if you're here this morning and you're weary. This is good news for the weary, for those who are worn out, because um, it's exhausting trying to be your own God. It's just exhausting trying to rule your little world (laughs) and do things your way and be everything for yourself. It's exhausting. And we fight, and sometimes it takes up a lot of energy to run from God, and it actually doesn't lead us to life or flourishing or joy or peace or rest like we were told it would. So what a gift then when, when Jesus confronts us And calls us to surrender again, not because he's against us, but because he's for us. What a gift when he loves us too much to leave us there in our sin. Because what he has is better for us. What a gift to to come and surrender and repent and hear his voice. Just would you just come back to me? Would you stop striving so hard and running the opposite direction and wearing yourself out and spending so much energy? Would you just turn around? Let me wrap my arms around you and bring you home. Just receive the grace and love of God. Jared Wilson put it this way. Christianity is the only religion for the tired. Christianity is the only religion for the tired. Because the message of the gospel is not do, it's done. It's not work harder, earn it, keep working. It's simply come and rest and receive what Christ has done for you. So I think of Stephen in this text and his opponents. They're spending so much energy fighting him and fighting Jesus and the gospel and trying to counter him. They've got this trial. They're stirring up false witnesses. They're, you know, doing this whole PR campaign. they got ads on TV about how bad the apostles are and how bad the gospel is, whatever. What if, what if instead they just surrendered to Jesus? Man, what if you just surrendered and then go and take a nap? Just experience the joy and the love that can only come from life with him. We have a chance to respond today as a church family by taking communion. In just a few moments we're going to come to the table and receive the elements, the bread representing the broken body of Christ on the cross and the blood representing the shed blood of Christ on the cross you think about identity markers, what it is that makes us who we are as a church family. Again, for the Jews, they would look to temple and Torah and the sacrificial system. Uh, This is one of the big ones for us as followers of Jesus today, right? The New Covenant Church. Identity markers? The table. And the body and blood of Christ. That's what makes us who we are. That's what forms us together as a new family. And we come, what, with, with open hands not saying, God, look at what I've done, but Lord, I come to receive because I'm needy and dependent and I need your grace. We practice an open table here at FBC, which simply means, hey, even if you're visiting, if you're from out of town or from a different church or you haven't become a member here yet, um, we still invite you to participate as long as you are a follower of Jesus, just someone who has turned from their sin and is trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you're here this morning and that's not you, um, just here visiting uh, we're just still considering these things we invite you just to remain seated and reflect on all we've talked about this morning it's gonna be two tables I invite you to come forward as the music plays and as you're ready again first Corinthians tells us the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks and broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we remember you together this morning. You are our savior. You are our king. You are the hero of the story. And Lord, we surrender to you anew this morning. We we bow our hearts and our lives before you and say, Lord, have your way. Lord, convict us, change us. Comfort us where we need to be reminded of your grace. We come to the table. Thank you that we come to the table to receive what you have done for us. The table is not for those who are worthy or those who have earned it or those who have done enough. The table is for weary sinners like us. Thank you for your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.